evening. Goodbye Forever by Nakhchang Rinpoche. Chapter 4, Part 2. I read a great deal in those faces from the book called Tibetan Art, mainly because I'd never seen such faces before. They seemed to be communicating with me personally. They gazed out of the pages at me, saying something wordless that hovered just below or above the level of meaning. I had no idea what their message was, but I knew it was extremely important. Seeing those images and wordlessly sensing what they conveyed reminded me strongly of the White Lady. This was it. The same thing was happening, but now it was shining at me from the pages of a book. Somehow I felt entirely validated. The White Lady had not been solely within my imagination. Here was a book with other people who were similar to the White Lady, and these pictures were in the real world. The book was complete evidence to me that the White Lady really existed. The faces I saw in the book were not quite as beautiful as the White Lady, but there was something about one of them, called Tara, that seemed amazingly similar. The colours in the book were all a little muted, and so I supposed that Tara would be far more vivid and clear in real life. The White Lady started appearing again after that, and it was wonderful to see her. When I thought back to her in the daytime, I wondered why she never spoke to me. I also wondered why I never asked her who she was. I decided that I would definitely ask her who she was, but somehow I always forgot, or maybe the idea just refused to stay in my mind. She just looked at me and I was delightedly content to be looked at. I said nothing at all about it to anyone apart from Steve because I had no wish to annoy anyone or have my father talking about mental hospitals again. Then there were the fiery beings in the book. They were incredibly ferocious. They were also mysteriously well-intentioned, as if they'd be good friends to have. Dogs could be like that, I thought. Really savage when they were barking, but actually gentle and affectionate. I knew dogs like that, who'd bark until they recognised me. Then they'd wag their tails and I'd stroke them. Somehow these fiery beings seemed as if they'd be like that in some obscure way. For some indecipherable reason, I had some private delusion that Vikings were ferocious but kindly. I saw Vikings as having all the trappings of warfare, but merely as some kind of personal style. The huge two-handed swords and double-headed axes were simply amazing things that they carried. 
their horned and winged helmets were the same, simply their style. Somehow I'd devised my own Norse culture in which these warriors, men and women, simply roved around the sea in longships and came home for fine roast dinners they'd cook with their beautiful golden-haired shield maidens. I knew it wasn't true, of course, but it was what I'd have wanted if I could have created it myself. As I got older, my personal myth of the perfect Viking culture evaporated. It became increasingly difficult to maintain my naive enthusiasm for a culture that never existed. So, when I saw these Tibetan beings, who were both fierce and friendly, I felt as if I'd come home. Here was something very close to my Viking fantasy, but it was part of the real world. It was suddenly explosively obvious that I'd found my religion. I was a Vajrayana Buddhist. As soon as I could find my way to Tibet, I was going there because that was where I belonged. The other book in the school library was called On the Road Through Tibet. Tibet wasn't exactly Norway as it was landlocked, but it did have the most amazing mountains. The Himalayas were the highest mountains in the world and that had to be good. I looked at the photographs of the people in their huge dramatic landscapes. There were rushing torrents straddled by precarious rope bridges. They'd be exciting to cross. There were fantastic fortresses and places called gompas that looked like the fortresses. They had dragon heads on the corners of the roofs which reminded me of the dragons on the prows of longships. I thought how much I'd like to live in one of those monasteries, although the idea of celibacy somehow failed to intrude on my idea of what life would be like in one of those wonderful buildings. I'd seen long-haired Tibetans in stupendous costumes, so it was plain to me that shaving your head was only one way of doing things in Tibet. As soon as I saw the beautiful goddess called Tara, it struck me that it wasn't Frigg who was the white lady who'd appeared in my bedroom. The white lady was Tara. I wondered how I could find out more about Tara, but there was nothing further I could discover at that time. There was also a huge, dark blue, yak-headed being with many arms and legs. This was certainly different from the imagery I'd seen in churches. There seemed to be no problem with nakedness in Tibetan culture either, because the huge, dark blue, yak-headed being with many arms and legs was naked and moreover sported an erection. There seemed to be a huge problem with nakedness in England and I remembered getting into trouble with my painting of 
naked dancing devils when I attended East Street Infant School. My mother had had to come and hear all about it from the headmistress, who'd had some sort of anxiety attack about it. My mother had to explain to the headmistress that it was probably due to my father's bellicose reaction to the Trevelyans spraying me and three girls with a hose on a hot day one summer. Alice and I, in the company of Bethany and Gillian, had leapt around naked in the spray, enjoying the cool water and the rainbows caused by the mist. The Trevelyans thought nothing of nudity for five-year-olds, but as far as my father had been concerned, it was the utmost depravity. I'd been forbidden to return to play with Alice and had to go there in secret after that. My mother colluded with me, so life went on as normal, apart from my naked devil paintings. I had a five-year-old fantasy that it was God who produced the nasty heat of summer just to torment the happy, fun-loving devils. My paintings, therefore, depicted devils dancing in cool sprays of water to thwart God's evil plan. It was the only way I could make sense of the world at the time, because no one would explain anything to me. There were rules and morals, but where they came from or why they were there was a mystery. According to my father, it all came from God. And so God was obviously to blame for every imaginable evil. As time went by, of course, my five-year-old imaginings revealed themselves as ridiculous. I still had a yearning for something that made sense of reality. And here it was. It was all happening in Tibet. Buddhism was all about kindness, but it was also exciting and colourful. Mr and Mrs Bruce, consequent to Steve having told them that I was a Buddhist, had observed that if they were to have followed any religion, it would be Buddhism. This was because there was no uncreated creator God in Buddhism, and it was logical. Logical meant that it made sense, and that made sense to me. The Christianity on which I'd been raised made no sense whatsoever. And my father's view was reflected in what I heard at school. What a relief then to find that there was a place in the world where people had rational notions of how to live. On the road through Tibet had a photograph of a woman milking a dree. She had a headdress that looked like something from a science fiction film. Two huge circular ornaments which looked as if they'd come from another planet. So it was possible to wear brightly coloured clothes. It was possible to be individual. Some of the ladies had their hair up in extraordinary horns made of wood with interestingly shaped objects hanging from them. 
It seemed as if you could dress any way you liked in Tibet. I decided that I would have to go and live there as soon as I was free to do so. The white lady began to appear again on most nights. My dreams began to burgeon with vertiginous vignettes, slightly unsettling, yet hypnotically fascinating. There were sensations that I likened to terrifying fairground rides, trepidation and exhilaration. The scenarios were entirely intriguing and I seemed to segue between partial lucid dreaming and partial somnolent dreaming. I was never clear which was which. Once I had seen the photographs in the books about Tibet, I was aware that the people in my dreams were Tibetan. The landscape, however, was not like the landscapes I had seen in the photographic books. Tibet looked quite harsh in most of these photographs. There were a few photographs of mountains and a few alpine meadows at the beginning, but the rest of the sepia-toned photographs looked quite barren. This did not dissuade me in respect of wanting to live there, but these images were not what I saw in my dreams. I saw no monasteries, temples, shrine rooms or monks in my dreams. Only a tent encampment in a high alpine valley where rather plainly dressed people either sat attentively or went about their quiet business. The women wore none of the fantastic costumes and headdresses I'd seen in the book, but seemed to dress in a similar style to the men. This was not vexatious to me, because it was obvious that there must be many different styles of dress in a country. Sometimes, however, people seemed to wrap themselves in colourful fabrics. Some wore hats that were vaguely like floral bishop's mitres, but not floral in the pallid pastel style with which I was familiar in ladies' dresses or sofas. They were deep colours. After what seemed to have been months of silence, I started to be aware of sounds. These people would sometimes sing in an eerie yet beautiful manner. These songs did not seem to be songs in the way I knew song to be. It was not because they were foreign. I'd heard songs from different parts of the world in school, in the music lessons. And however foreign they sounded, they were still recognisable songs. What some of these people in my dreams sang was something else. They were using their voices to do something else. But what that might be, I could not tell. I began to look at these library books every day and to copy the images in them. I drew them in the art lessons and the teachers seemed to think that was an acceptable thing to do. The other boys seemed to prefer drawing aeroplanes. They liked to draw air battles where the aeroplanes gradually destroyed each other 
and their whole drawing turned into a mess. I thought that procedure was entirely asinine, but never commented. When my father and mother came to the parents' evening, they looked at my artwork and at the artwork of the other boys. There was a display of our work on the wall for the parents to see. My father asked about my paintings because they were so different from the work of the other boys. And Mr. Sharp explained that I had been inspired by the two books on Tibet I had found in the library. My father was not well pleased that I was painting heathen gods and requested that I should have no further access to the books. That was the end of a marvellous phase of time. It marked the beginning of the diminution of visits from the White Lady, apart from sporadic appearances that became increasingly vague. It seemed that the more I learned how to live unproblematically in the vicinity of my father, and authority figures in general, the less I was able to visit the Tibetan landscapes in my dream world. A year passed and, try as I would, my dream world drifted into tepidity. There were still occasional journeys to somewhere or other that may have been Tibet, but there was little vividness left. It gradually ceased to be a real place and became a place that was merely a dream. After a year had passed, my Tibetan dream world seemed something of the remote past. All I remembered was that once something luminous used to occur. I described it as the sensation when one doesn't know whether one has dreamed something or whether it really happened apart from the fact that I no longer knew whether I had dreamed these things or that I had merely dreamed that I had dreamed. This degree of illusion was too much or too little to retain. And after a while, I spent months when the idea of the white lady hardly entered my mind. Steve had talked to his parents and they wrote to mine. We had no telephone, and it was thereafter arranged that I could stay at his house on occasional weekends. Fortunately, that turned out to be almost every other weekend, and my father seemed happy about the arrangement. Steve's father was a police superintendent, and my father approved. The boy will be in a wholesome environment there, my father proclaimed not an iniquitous den of nudist vegetarian fanatics. I looked up the word fanatic and it surprised me as it was clearly my father who was the fanatic. The Trevelyans had been as far from fanatical as I could imagine. They had been friendly, open-minded and inquisitive. Weekends at Steve's place were times to learn about music practice guitar and escape my father's surveillance. Steve seemed far ahead of the school's music lessons and so I could ask him questions. I taught Steve to sing some blues numbers, which he enjoyed. 
he thought I had a good voice. The Beatles were burgeoning in public consciousness, along with an ever-increasing number of Liverpool groups, and so the idea of starting a group ourselves seemed obvious. It seemed that Steve and I had the makings of a group. I was a nascent vocalist. I was loud and lacking in timidity, although given to tempo rubato that I often failed to pay back. Steve was more than good with both rhythm and lead guitar. Steve's main love, however, was bass. He planned to make the shift as soon as his hands were large enough. So all we needed was a lead guitarist and a drummer, and we'd be primed for action. I started thinking that I should write song lyrics rather than poetry, and started looking at the blues lyrics I knew. I played with ideas. I knew I couldn't write about things that happened in America, so I spent a lot of time thinking about what kind of language would work in England without sounding silly. Steve could read and write music, so he was able to collect our ideas and work on them. Steve had a brother called Mark, who was three or four years older. Mark played bass guitar and had started to give Steve some guidance on the instrument. The first time I heard the bass, I knew it was my instrument. It sounded as if it came out of the ground like an earthquake. The sound was substantial and created shapes and colours in the room which were almost physical. Mark let me play his bass one day and it loomed large in my mind ever after. <laughs> 